check, check. There we go. Okay. Testicles. Right. Testicles, one, two, three. Testicles, testicles, one, two, three. There's an interesting situation happening right outside of my uh, hotel window. Uh, that would be a fucking Lenny Kravitz concert going down directly outside of my fucking window. I'm like, guys, turn it down. I've had enough of your shenanigans. That's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> it's production value. Here we are, Justin. I'm glad we're back. I'm glad we're actually uh, doing this thing. This is fun. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Jesus fucking Christ. We had a little game of podcasting tag. Yeah, that was a little rough there for a while, but... Uh, so, yeah, you want to get this thing going? Better now than later. Washington, Washington, six foot eight weighs a fucking ton. Opponents beware, opponents beware. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Let me lay it on the line, he had two on the vine. I mean two sets of testicles, so divine. On a horse made of crystal, he patrolled the land. With the mason ring and schnauzer in his perfect hands. Here comes George, in control. Women dug his snuff and his gallant stroll. Eight opponents' brains. And invented cocaine. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Washington. Hello and welcome to episode two of POTUS Life Podcast. This time, we'll be talking about more than just ourselves, and we'll actually start talking about the one and the only, His Excellency, George Washington. So, Justin, where are we going to uh, start this off? Well, first of all, it's been a while since we recorded, and oh, yeah. a couple of things have happened in the world in general. So, uh, Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee for the Republican side of the battle. God bless America. And uh, he's going to make America great again. I got my hat. Did you get a hat? Yeah, I got a hat. <laughs> oh. I didn't buy it, so I didn't contribute to his campaign. But Thank God. Somebody somebody got it for me, and I was, was not hey, disappointed. Hey, serious question, though. is it? It's made in China, right? I didn't even look. Yeah, I'm, t- I'm really curious about that. I'm, I'm willing to, to put big money... Down at I don't think so. I, th- I don't think he he went to China. China. We don't win China. anymore. China is killing us, just like Japan was. He used to say he used to talk about Japan like he talks about China now, which is kind of funny. Well, they were kind of destroying us until their entire economy collapsed. Yeah, it's like <laughs> nothing that, like that can ever happen to China, right? China. Not like they've been having no children for a while. <laughs> Only men. It's not like their workforce is disappearing. It's just mostly only men. Just a bunch of hungry, hungry men in a country of no women. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. Maybe they'll start stealing women from North Korea. It's not a bad idea. Does North Korea have a child law? I don't think so. Oh, we don't even know what they have. Yeah, I guess that's, yeah, I guess that's fair. I mean, they're starving, so they might have some restrictions on children. But Oh, Kim, the Kims. <laughs> so are you gonna come out here for the rnc you know what i'm actually really uh, i'm really upset i was supposed to be working the rnc i was supposed to be in the broadcast truck for the rnc so they'll my old crew will actually be out there 
doing the broadcast for the RNC. So I'm hoping that I still have passes in my name so that we can go out. Oh I, I'm God. not shitting you. Yeah, I know. Wouldn't that be awesome to have some press access during the RNC? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really trying to make it happen. I I'll swear. I'm impressed with, with a Trump hat on. Huh. There may and or may not be rules about that, but I'm not sure. Rules are meant to be broken. Well, that's fair. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually, I do, I do want to come into town for it. I think that is going to be a wonderful, wonderful, glorious time. We could be part of the riots. <laughs> we'll get some, some riot punch. That would be the second time that I've protested and almost been in a riot in Cleveland. Some grain alcohol and blue punch. Get the riot punch going. Making a little cocktail. Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to riot without my riot punch. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a two-gallon jug, too. <laughs> so, yeah, on to the... On to the show. The way, the way back when. And we're going to start with John Washington, who probably deserves his own podcast in itself. But we'll try to just sum it up. John Washington is, I guess we could consider him to be the great-grandfather of America if we're going to consider... George Washington to be the father of our country. And uh, John grew up in England. It seems like he had a relatively good life growing up. His father was well-educated. He held a couple college degrees. He was a fellow at Oxford. And he was later a minister. And John is about 9 or 10 years old. He's a fancy little schoolboy in London. And that's when the English Civil War breaks out which ran from 1642 to 1651. And this is bad news for John because his father, Lawrence Washington, is going to be on the losing end of, the, of these clashes. He's going to be on the side of the Royalists. I'm not sure when, but at some point during the nine year, years of Civil War, John's father is going to basically lose everything. The family is going to be barred from the University of Oxford and John, along with his mother and siblings, end up living with a relative. So the first half of John's life, he's the fancy schoolboy. And then the second half of his of his, his life in England is not the best. He is, however, able to find a merchant apprenticeship in London. And in 1656, around the age of 23, he says, screw it, I'm going to be a tobacco man. He moves to the New World a.k.a. America, to be a tobacco trader. Now, here's a part of the story that makes me think that John Washington would be a good Lannister, if you will. He gets, the, he gets to the New World and stays at a plantation in Virginia. The plantation own, owner is Colonel Nathaniel Pope. Now, John Washington gets to thinking, wow, this Pope guy's got some money. He has a lot of land in the New World. And he has a daughter, and he used his algebra skills <laughs> and said, I need to marry this Pope lady ASAP. Maybe I'm just being cynical and thinking that John Washington only married Ann Pope because she was a rich girl. I'm not saying that they weren't in love or whatever, although I don't know how many people married for love back then. Yeah, well, and we'll get definitely get into more of that uh, later. Oh, yeah, I mean, pretty much just marry for acreage, right? But but I am saying that John Washington literally married the first rich girl that he met in America. <laughs> so I guess what I'm really saying is that if you're a rich girl who's about to get married to a not-so-rich guy, well, you do the math. He doesn't really love you and all of your non-rich friends 
<laughs> Relate you do Hollow Notes song Rich Girl. I realize that I'm I'm kind of alienating our target audience of rich girls. Yeah, you are right now. Yep. Rich girls about to get married to not so rich guys. And that means you're probably ugly. Uh, <laughs> I apologize for any hurt feelings, but in all honesty, your boyfriends or fiancés would not pick you if they were the bachelor and you were a normal income female contestant. You are not getting the rose. Wah, wah. But anyways, John is going to get a nice wedding present from his new father-in-law to the tune of 700 acres. So now he can become a planner, which everybody wants to become a planner in the new world. He also becomes a politician holding a few public offices. He becomes a colonel in the Virginia militia. He goes to war against those savage Indians, which kind of runs in the family, I guess, as you'll see later. Uh, He becomes quite familiar with the Indians, so much so that they give him the nickname, and I love this nickname, which translates to... Destroyer of villages. <laughs> so John Washington, great grandfather of our country, aka destroyer of villages. Well, that makes him sound sort of like a dick. But anyways, one day while he's accomplishing all these goals, he says to himself, "Hey John, you have all this land. You better go get some some of those indentured servants you've heard so much about." And at this point, indentured servants came with land. You weren't ever actually going to give them land. I mean, they're never going to be able to pay off their debt. So you could work them to death before they came anywhere near paying their debt to freedom. So all of a sudden, old John Boy has himself thousands of acres right on the Potomac River. You know that spot where Mount Vernon is. Hmm. still is. So John has three kids with Anne before she dies in 1669. People just kind of drop off back then from yeah, they really season. they really did. Yeah, kind of like uh, I like this Obamacare, <laughs> but uh, he gets married to another Anne, Anne Gerard, which happens to be my father's middle name mm. and my brother's middle name. Not my middle name because I'm not the first son, but. I don't have any issues with that. No, there's a, I didn't hear any issues whatsoever in your voice there <laughs> just at that time. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any birthrights or inheritance. <laughs> but So we start to think that maybe John Washington is just really into Anne's. It's, he's got a type in the new world. And, and that's just any Anne. girl with the name Anne that has a little bit of, maybe a little bit of acreage. Yeah, yeah. But then, the, okay, so the second Anne dies. So he marries her sister. Francis Gerard. So it turns out that John Washington was as much into Gerard's as he <laughs> was into Anne's. So supposedly the Gerard sisters had ran a brothel, were accused of banging the governor, <laughs> and each at some point appeared before John while he was in office as Justice of the Peace. Hmm. Hmm. So John is having fun in America, I guess you'd say. But he ends up checking out at the young age of 46 with what was probably typhoid fever. And at the age of 46, John Washington has sort of set the stage for his great-grandson to become the first president of the United States. It wasn't uh, inevitable, but he he made things easy. Easier, I guess. Yeah, probably uh, 
probably a little bit easier. Uh, you know, we uh, mentioned that John had three kids with Ann Pope before uh, becoming a man with the brothel sisters. And the three kids were Lawrence Washington, John Washington II, and Ann Washington. Ann Washington, John did really have a thing for the name Ann, uh, didn't he? Even named one of his daughters Ann. That's not odd at all. Anyways, in the tradition of the day called primogeniture, when John dies, Lawrence, his first son, inherits the entirety of the main estate, unlike you will ever inherit, just because you are not the first. Because uh, my parents are poor. <laughs> uh, and just those, kidding. Parents, if you ever listen to this, you're not poor. Kidding. I, I don't. I we actually, are poor. I actually don't think that any anyone that I know will probably end up listening to this, and and maybe they shouldn't. Um, I hope not, because we don't like any of you. <laughs> so, the main bulk of John Washington's estate consisted of uh, two pieces of land on the Potomac, and uh, named Maddox Creek and Little Hunting Creek. Uh, so, Justin, let me just say, researching Lawrence Washington was difficult. First of all. The Washingtons had a little tradition of naming boys Lawrence. Seriously, there are like eight of them. It was crazy. I kept looking up Lawrence Washington in my research, and I had no idea who the hell they were talking about most of the time. So I have to take little bits and pieces, try to find dates, try to find some Lariates. Exactly. So saying that, I didn't really find too much on the grandfather of our nation, to be completely honest with you. I did do a little digging, though. What we do know about Lawrence is that he was able to go to England due to the restoration of the monarchy. Again, his father was a royalist, so they really liked the monarchs. He received his education and was trained as a lawyer. After his schooling, he came back to Virginia and held several local positions. Justice of the Peace, Burgess. Am I saying that right, by the way? Bur- Burgess? Burgess? I guess this is as good as mine. Yeah, I actually, like, this This keeps coming up and I'm actually not sure how to say it. So anyway. And by the he, way, we don't care about pronunciations on this podcast. Yeah, so. not so much. Not so much. We'll try. Email. If you correct us, I'm just going to tell you I don't care. <laughs> um, so we have Justice of the Peace. He was a Burgess and he was a sheriff. He also carried on the Washington Washington tradition of marrying for status and wed Mildred Warner, the daughter of a member of the King's Council. Pretty high up there. As we understand it, he did not substantially expand upon his estate that he inherited, perhaps because he was focused on a career as a lawyer and also attending to various positions that he held in uh, the public. Lawrence and Mildred had three children, John, Augustine, and Mildred. Lawrence and Mildred named their oldest son John and their daughter Mildred. These people were incredibly uncreative when it came to naming their children. Lawrence, Mildred, Anne, John. We pretty much just have like Greek history and the Bible to go off of. (laughs) So shortly after Mildred was born in 1698, Lawrence continued on with another Washington tradition of dying at a relatively young age. He was only about 38. Augustine, the father of George Washington, was three or four at this time. Mildred wasted no time, and about two years after her husband's death, she remarried a British ship captain named George Gale. And again, this was very much out of necessity. It wasn't like she was being some crazy whore going out there and marrying the first John that she could find. She needed to propagate her estate. And as a woman, she didn't have too many rights. So she really needed a man to carry out most of her business for her. And you don't really hear much of that these days that somebody married a British ship captain. (laughs) He was from Whitehaven, England. So yes, he was a a, a wonderful British ship captain. 
And in May of 1700, Mildred and her children sailed back to Whitehaven to live with the captain. I wonder if they called him the captain. I hope they did. I hope they did. I wonder if he had a whistle, and when he blew the whistle, the children would come running from upstairs, downstairs. That sounds like Sound of Music. (laughs) Perhaps singing some musical numbers. I'm just allowing my mind to run wild with these scenarios of what possibly happened to George. What did the kids call their father in, in The Sound of Music? What did they call him? Governor or something? No. Did they call him the captain? No. I don't think so. I'm going to have to look this up. Anyway, she was pregnant during the voyage, and upon arriving to England, Mildred passed away, and her newborn followed shortly after. George Gale, seeking proper education for his stepchildren that he just inherited, sent John and Augustine to the prestigious Appleby Grammar School in Westmoreland, England. Lawrence Washington stipulated in his will that if both he and Mildred died, his estate should be managed by his cousin John Washington until the time his sons could take possession of their inheritance. Once John learned of Mildred's death, this was Lawrence Washington's cousin, so once John learned of Mildred's death, he sent a dispatch to George Gale, and the courts of Stafford County in England asking for the children to be relinquished into his custody. The courts ruled in John Washington's favor, and at the age of 10, Augustine and his siblings were shipped back to Virginia. In 1715, at the age of 21, Augustine married Jane Butler. At this time, Augustine had about 1,100 acres of inherited land and gained another 1,750 from Jane's dowry. He specialized in tobacco farming, very much a Washington tradition, and apparently England could not get enough of tobacco. So this was a really good trade to be a part of. If you could grow tobacco in the States, you could very easily sell it back to England and make a decent profit. He began to snatch up parcels of land in the area, specifically looking for land rich in iron ore. So apparently somebody had some big plans. Augustine, in somewhat of another Washington family tradition, served as justice of the peace and sat on the county court. So we see that, you know, they both liked farming. All of the Washingtons kind of liked farming, and they also uh, held some sort of public office. They believed in civic duty. Augustine and Jane had three children together, Lawrence, yet again, Augustine Jr., often referred to as Austin, and Jane. Lawrence and Austin were both sent to Applebee's Grammar School in England to receive proper education. Eating good in the neighborhood. Eating good. I can't tell you how I was like, Applebee's? This is fun. I'm very hungry now. Um, in 1729. Hey, if you want somebody to heat up some frozen food for you, or if you're too lazy to heat up your own frozen food, <laughs> you can go to Applebee's. It, yeah. Yeah. You're kind of right there. Mm-mm. While you were talking, I looked up the Sound of Music, and oh yeah, his under his credit, he's he's known as Captain Von Trapp. So <laughs> I'm not watching that movie to find out, but I'm also surprised to know that he's still alive. What? Totally no. dead by now. Yeah, I thought he would have been totally dead too. How old's this guy? A million? Uh, I'm gonna close the tab. Ah, you killed it. He looks old. I'm not <laughs> doing math right now. Uh, he was born in 29 that's what happens when you drink the rye the math gets hard yeah he's slated to be in a a movie called Boundaries in 2017 shut up yeah oh man that's really impressive actually I don't recognize him from anything probably looks old 
<laughs> but he was yeah, he was in the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Wait, the original or the English language remake? Okay, okay, yeah, I was about to say which one. And he was the voice in Up. Really? Up the video game and the the movie. Well, that's kind of fun, actually. He played Caesar in 2009 Caesar and Cleopatra, which I'd never even heard of. Oh, I know. Yeah, I know that movie. Yeah. 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 Interesting. So Rabbit trailed off that one off of Applebee's Grammar School. Anyway, in 1729, Augustine traveled to England to sign a contract with the Principo Company, who owned iron ore operations in Virginia and Maryland. During his trip, he fell ill and was cared for by none other than Mary Ball, who was in England visiting her half-brother. Once he returned to Virginia, he learned that his wife had actually died while he was away. So uh, for a highly engaged businessman and public servant, being a widower wasn't much of an option. Augustine began to search for a woman who could take care of his household. Again, we find that it was very much a necessity to take care of your, your household, and marrying was more for the purpose of expanding land and caring for a household. Uh, after learning, yeah, it was a lot harder to wash clothing back then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Specifically, if you have, we have all these machines, small children, and it, you know, think about this: this guy's off, you know, playing with ore all day. Who's going to take care of the kids? Can't trust those indentured servants. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're in uh, Mel Gibson movie The Patriot. Oh my gosh, we free we, men. We free men. We work this land. <laughs> Oh, Mel Gibson, you piece of shit. Yeah, Mel Gibson is kind of a piece of shit. There were so... Oh, we can't even get started on that, but there are so many inaccuracies in that movie. It just makes me angry. Uh, just, I mean, not even... I mean, obviously, that's not a real scenario, but just, like, what's going down in that movie, so inauthentic. Although I do kind of like the period piece clothing. I think that was kind of fun. I, I kind of got into that a little bit. Heath Ledger, he made it all right. Yeah, um, Mel Gibson's character couldn't make any fucking rocking chairs to save his life. <laughs> Apparently that's that a hard a cute thing. Part. That was a cute part. There was some giggling. But I did read an article once upon a time about the, the guy who he's playing and supposedly he was just a monster. Like just a savage, savage just, monster. Yeah. Like he was probably ha- like hacking people with that hatchet up a lot more than Mel Gibson was, which is pretty messed up. But anyways. But anyways, but anyways, you know, he came back. His wife was dead. For a highly engaged businessman and public servant, being a widower wasn't much of an option. Augustine began a search for a woman who could take care of his household. After learning that Mary Ball was back in Virginia, Augustine went over to her home and proposed, because that's apparently just how you did it. Uh, the that's two how I'm do it. Exactly. The two were married on March 6, 1731. Augustine's new wife was quite the woman. She had a pretty rough past. She was only three when her father an English businessman named John Ball, died, and only 12 when her mother, who was an illiterate housekeeper named Mary Johnson, died. After the deaths of her parents, she was put under the charge of an incredibly prominent lawyer named George Eskridge, who she would later honor by naming uh, a son, her first son, after him, actually. Um, So from what I understand, Mary Ball lived a somewhat privileged life while living with the Eskridges, and at the age of 18, she owned three horses, at least three slaves, cattle, and over a thousand acres of land. Some of that land happened to be conveniently located directly adjacent to the Principo Mine in Stafford County. Remember the Principo Company? Anyways, it was also said that she was an avid... It's going to be our new, our new line. Remember the Remember Principo? Remember the Principo Company? Remember the Principo? Anyways, it was also said that she was an avid horse rider. She knew how to manage a boat... 
which is odd. I mean, seriously, they mentioned this like about how good she was at wrangling a boat and handling a gun. So she knew how to shoot. Uh, she was also versed in sewing, knitting, cooking, and banking. Very convenient, actually, for running a household. And rumor has it she could make a very mean ginger snap cookie. I shit you not, people were mentioning like how good her ginger snap cookies were. Ooh, I could use a ginger snap cookie right about now. That's what I'm saying. George, she would specifically bake these cookies for George Washington. Like it talks about it often, like all the time, that she would make these cookies and feed them to George because she was, uh, he was her favorite. Oh yeah. <laughs> After about a year of marriage, Augustine and Mary have a little boy. Here comes George Washington, born February 11, seventeen thirty-two. Mm-hmm. I choose to believe that he was a fat baby. He was probably a fat baby. There are a lot of contending versions of his upbringing. There are claims that his mother ran a very strict down-to-earth household. On the other hand, we have Nathaniel Hawthorne, who I suspect will show up when we talk about other presidents, saying things like George Washington was born with his clothes on and his hair powdered and made a stately bow at his first appearance in the world. At any rate, by the age of three, George and the fam settled along the Potomac in the house that would later grow into the Mount Vernon mansion, only to uproot them a few years later to a plantation a bit to the south. It's around this time that George first sets his eyes on his older brother Lawrence upon his return from Appleby's grammar school. George was six and Lawrence was 20. I think this age difference fostered an idolization of Lawrence and young George's mind, just thinking about how any younger brother would perhaps view an older brother. Upon Lawrence's return, his father assigned him to manage the property on the Potomac River, known as Little Hunting Creek Plantation. It's around this time that Lawrence also begins to purchase land tracts on the periphery of Little Hunting Creek Estate in his name, signaling that he had come into his majority, a.k.a. he reached the age of 21, which was the, the 18 back then. Would you say that George idolized Lawrence like you idolized me? Um, yeah, I think, I think it's a very similar... Uh, love that maybe maybe doesn't always speak its name <laughs> perhaps oh stop <laughs> oh. anyways in 1739 Great Britain went to war with Spain in the Caribbean uh, partly caused by long standing hostilities partly because Britain was seeking uh, better trade agreements with Spain and partly because a British boat captain had his ear mangled when the Spanish were performing a quote unquote lawful search of the vessel more more British boat captains. More British boat captains. The captain. So naturally, the conflict in the Caribbean was formally called the War of Jenkins' Ear. That was the name of the boat captain whose ear got shot up. Realizing a need for more ground troops, the Crown enlisted colonial subjects into an American foot regiment. This is the first instance of the Crown enlisting American colonies, uh, colonists into their ranks. Lawrence was awarded the coveted post of captain of the Virginia Company, which really was, as, as a point back then, a pretty prominent position. So it's, it's fascinating to me that he actually even came into this position in the first place. Lawrence never actually made it into real action, though. He actually never disembarked the ship he was on. Lawrence, like many of his other soldiers, suffered yellow fever and suffered yellow fever. Is that fe- when uh, you become attracted to the <laughs> That would be a tropical disease, but I guess I guess that could be a side effect. I didn't actually research that one all too much. I'm disappointed. 
In a letter he sent home, he tells of how the enemy killed some 600 and the climate killed us an even greater number. That's a quote from Lawrence basically saying, hey, a bunch of people did kind of die down here, but more of us died of the fever and the food and all that other sort of stuff. Admiral Vernon led the major offensive. Wait, against- say that again. What was his name? Um, that would be Admiral Vernon. Ad- Admiral Vernon? Admiral Vernon. Okay, go ahead. Admiral Vernon led the major offensive against Spain at Cartagena, located on the northern coast of South America. Vernon sent some 9,000 men into a bloody defeat. In spite of the losses, Lawrence held Admiral Vernon in high regard and named uh, that little plantation on the Potomac after him and hung his portrait in honor in the home. Yeah, he he had commissioned a portrait of him and hung it in the home and named it to him after he sent 9,000 people to their death. Georgie, be like uh, Admiral Vernon here, please. (laughs) Great, great man. Well, it's interesting, actually, kind of in, in point, because that did happen, didn't it? Hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, also, very interesting tidbit about Admiral Vernon. Interesting. Uh, he had a strange nickname. He was called Old Grog due to the grogum coat he liked to wear. Uh, he also liked to mix rum and water with lime juice to keep the water on the ship fresher longer and helped avoid scurvy. So the sailors referred to this tropical lime-infused watered-down rum as grog. So when you mention grog, you're quite literally referring to Admiral Vernon. That's the first uh, time Grog appears. Yeah, yeah, that's the ex- that's the first time Grog appeared. That is nice. why they called it Grog because he, because he wore a Grogum coat and they called him Old Grog. Kind I think of. that's who I'm going to be following next year. <laughs> <I'm learning>. <laughs> <laughs> so George had his first glimpse of war via his older brother Lawrence. I estimate the tales Lawrence brought home from his travels were enhanced to a young boy uh, and very enchanting. So I'm sure he just thought these wonderful things of war and was very enchanted by the thought of going away and fighting, not realizing kind of the hardship of all of it. I believe that Lawrence really helped blaze the trail that George would follow and later extend with his military career. Shortly after returning to Virginia, Lawrence secured an appointment to the post of the militia commander adjunct of Virginia, bestowed by Governor William Gooch. The Gooch. The Gooch. Around the same time tragedy struck, on April 12th, 1743, a relatively young 49-year-old Augustine Washington died of an illness after riding around the farm in the rain. Foreshadowing. After their father died, Lawrence inherited Mount Vernon and the iron mine. Austin received the Pope Creek property, and little Georgie inherited Ferry Farm, half a share of the property named Deep Run, and assorted lots around Fredericksburg. 11-year-old George also found himself the owner of 10 slaves. At this point in time, it's a, it's a pretty decent start. You know, you're 11. It's almost a an, a slave per year. I wish it could have been. Yeah, I, w- I wish I wish it could it's have been. It's almost as slaves. good as birthday spankings. Almost, maybe better. I don't know. I I, I it might be a toss up. Since George was too young to claim all of this property, his inheritance was placed in the stewardship of his crazy ass mother. From what I've read about George's mother, she sounds like a pretty bossy bitch. Which I guess it's kind of disrespectful of me to say, but it was almost to the point of making George feel kind of inadequate. Like maybe he developed this complex that drove him to try to become the president of the United States later on. He was caught uh, romping with one of the largest <laughs> girls in school. Is that right? Is that all I have? Yeah, you, you, you had a short one there. 
Wow, and then you just go on and on. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Well, because well, yeah, and I do kind of go on and on this next section. It's kind of the, his. It's an interesting, interesting section. So, from what we understand, before Augustine's death, George received a very limited education: math, reading, and writing. Uh, had his father lived, George would most likely have received a very similar education to that of his brothers. Alas, George's childhood was cut short. Mary never remarried, so I can imagine that there was pressure for George, her oldest child, to step into the role of man of the house. Ron Chernow says in his book, Washington, A Life, he was an exceedingly smart man with a quick ability to grasp ideas. He seized every interval of leisure to improve himself and showed a steady capacity to acquire and retain useful knowledge. And not to cut ahead, but we will see all throughout George's life that when he sets himself to a task, he will equally dedicate himself to attempting to understand that task fully. By the end of George's life, he amassed a rather stunning 1,200-volume library, which is they're actually trying to piece together quite literally book by book in uh, Mount Vernon. The original collection of his works were sold, and they're now kind of spread throughout. The, the collection is actually mostly intact, uh, little bits and pieces have been sold all throughout, and a bulk of the collection was actually going to be donated to a museum in England, but uh, basically they want to keep the books here. So the Mount Vernon Society, the people who kind of take care of Mount Vernon, want to keep the books here. So they're trying to digitally copy every single book and recreate it with an original binding uh, to keep in the library. Anyway, that's totally an aside, but I got like really geeked out by that one. Uh, <laughs> the books in the library, <laughs> I know, right? Uh, the books in the library ranged from how to plant crops to war strategies. Although I did read that a source noted that Washington absorbed his lessons from action, not necessarily from books, uh, which I would tend to believe, honestly. I think that his books were read. I think he perused over them, but I think that he needed to see it live in action. So when it came to an education... He learned the hard way, is what you're trying to say. Oh, yeah, no. We'll learn later, definitely. He learned the hard way. He had to... He had to be engaged and fail multiple times in order to truly understand what the hell he was doing. So not necessarily the sharpest tool in the shed, I it was guess. An efficient process. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was an and it was an incredibly efficient process. When it came to an education in social etiquette, his brother Lawrence and the Fairfax family, uh, which his brother Lawrence had married into, proved to be the perfect tutors. His relationship to the Fairfax family also provided him a perfect training ground for the testing out of his social skills in polite society. Speaking of a study of high society, he copied out by hand 110 social rules from the book, The Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in the Company in Company and Conversation. We assume that he did this more as an exercise in penmanship and less as an exercise in understanding how to behave, but some of these rules are pretty priceless. Here are a few of my favorites. Number 11, shift yourself not in the sight of others nor gnaw your nails. Number 54. I bite my nails all the time in front of people. And then I spit my nails in their faces because these people that I bite my nails in front of are indentured servants. Do you bite your thumb at me, sir? Yes. Do you, do you bite your thumb at me? Uh, number 54 was pretty good. Play not the peacock looking everywhere about you to see if you be well decked. If Some you Jack Donahue stuff. <laughs> If your shoes fit well, if your stockings sit neatly and close handsomely. So don't I love how I love how they mentioned play not the peacock. Don't peacock people. Don't look everywhere about. Don't see if you're well decked. And that was spelled D E C K apostrophe T decked. And number one hundred was pretty good. 
clean not your teeth with a tablecloth, napkin, fork, or knife, but if others do it, let it be done with a pick tooth. That really worked out well for his teeth. <laughs> didn't didn't follow that one so well, maybe. Uh, another point of his self-education that I find interesting is at the age of 17, he came to possess a compilation of the dialogues of Seneca the Younger, who was a Roman Stoic philosopher and statesman. And George really began to resonate and adhere with the Stoic philosophies, which very simplistically emphasize extreme self-control. Stoic philosophy also considers death not to be a tragedy, but merely a transformation as a part of nature and not something one should fear or view as a tragedy. So Stoicism is something that we'll see pop up again and again as we research George Washington. I think he very much did adhere to a Stoic belief. So this was kind of his first introduction at the age of 17 into stoicism stoicism dude like cato and uh probably had some mommy issues his half-brother lawrence marrying into the fairfax family is probably one of the bigger moments that allowed george to have the career that he did colonel fairfax took george on fox hunts and shit and shared with him caesar's commentaries which is one of my favorites and uh, a life of alexander the great fairfax claims that george's flaw was his temper, something shared by what other founders said about him later on. But mom saved him from starting a naval career at age 14. Which George was not so happy about. No, he wanted to be a seaman. (laughs) Uh, Did he bang his mom? We don't know. Probably not, but maybe. We could think about it. Or not. (laughs) I don't know. And uh, Mary ran out of cash and his education basically ended at the age of 15 so he became a surveyor a surveyor which uh maybe that'll be the our tagline george washington america's surveyor (laughs) question mark we gotta go up at the end of it he would have a pretty good uh he would have made a pretty good quality control technician (laughs) for a precision valve manufacturer in today's society i don't think he would have become the president but he would have had some some tools to inspect valves coming out of CNC machines or something. Or he would have had a, you know, a fluorescent vest to wear around as a surveyor. He was pretty he was pretty dedicated to the task. It, it's kind of funny I wonder. Oh, yeah. It almost sounds like like all he wanted to do his whole life was survey, but there was something like that how his mother made him feel inadequate just pushed him to do other <laughs> things. Like, when he was president, people probably had to remind him that, oh, we can't measure that right now, George. <laughs> way. I just really we wanted to, to talk play about my having a national debt. Like, <laughs> Alexander Hamilton's, like, smacking him in the face with his maps. <laughs> On one hand, he had this manly occupation involving being the typical rugged outdoorsman. But then it's awfully high and mighty about a messy bed. Oh, the messy bed is kind of funny. With the you're you're referring to the time with the bed bugs and stuff. This was his first. This was his first journey out. Actually, was it not? Yeah, I mean, he was sleep. Oh, he he went from like sleeping in the in the woods to sleeping in a cabin. He's like, this bed is messy. I don't like this bed. This is shit. He's not a fan of anybody that didn't speak English, like specifically English. You had to speak his English. He loved his clothes. He was a sparkling dancer. Sparkling. He kept at that survey game. He had enough money to buy 1,500 or so acres in the Shenandoah Valley. 
reminds me of uh, John Denver songs. In uh, 1750, he starts his career as a plantation man at the age of 18. So less surveying, more slavery. Which is actually interesting at the age of 18 because, again, 21 was really the time when a man would come into his own as a man in, in culture. I didn't actually research too much of this, but it, it, it makes me inter- it makes me wonder how the laws worked back then and, and who held your land if you were under a certain age or when you could actually become a landowner. I'll have to check that out. Sorry, I was just, just a side thought, side thought there. That's all right. So he kept acquiring land. Dude, dude became obsessed with land. He's measuring land. He's acquiring land. He's throwing slaves at land. <laughs> And he gets malaria around the same time that his brother Lawrence gets tuberculosis, that TB, in 1749. So what do you do at this time, 1749, when you're sick? I mean, what can what can you do? You go you go drink from Magical Springs or head over to Barbados. He eats some fruit and he sees theater for the first time in Barbados. He really starts getting into fashion and dancing and theater while he's sick in Barbados. And he gets smallpox in Barbados. So he's having a rough one. I mean, although that one turns out guys on our, on our money, that one turns out to actually be quite valuable. Yeah. Leaves, he leaves Barbados after recovering from smallpox in late 1751. He it's bad weather on the voyage home. He's seasick motherfucker gets, gets his money stolen <laughs> probably by a, a seaman. You know, one of the things he wanted to become earlier in his life on the ship. He remains sick in bed for a while, tries to court women while he's sick in bed. <laughs> Pretty smooth. And then his brother Lawrence dies in 1752. Is apparently uh, going to the Caribbean and drinking from Magical Springs doesn't, doesn't make you get better. I could never Only imagine Only Obamacare that. does. Only Obamacare. So George is going to get Mount Vernon and all its lands via his brother's will. So thank God for not having modern medicine. And this is where he begins his military career, sort of picking up the torch from Lawrence. Well, and I think I think it's kind of important to note, he doesn't actually get the land outright. Uh, he but he gets some land. He gets, yeah, he does get a little land. That's correct. But he doesn't receive. He doesn't receive Mount Vernon outright. Lawrence's wife actually gets that land, and she she leases it. Yeah, that comes him. later. Oh, sorry, fuck me. Come on, get with the picture. Fuck. And at, at this point, he starts making moves in the military world. He joins the Masonic Lodge, huh? Any conspiracy theorists listening right now? He joins the Masonic Lodge when Knights first Templar. Opened. Yeah. <laughs> they rule the world. The Illuminati. <laughs> It's on our money. <laughs> he, he joins it as soon as it opens in Fredericksburg in September of 1752. Like, he's pretty into it in his entire life. He said later on, So far as I am acquainted with the principles and doctrines of Freemasonry, I conceive it to be founded in benevolence and to be exercised only for the good of mankind. Also said that it was to enlarge the sphere of social happiness to promote the happiness of the human race. So he, he's drank the Kool-Aid of the... The, the Freemasons at this point. Yeah, I think it was the I think it was the compass that really got him. <laughs> the compass. He, he he could use it uh, on surveying. He never wore the powder the powdered wig. He just powdered his real hair. Said something that pulled it back in a queue. Yeah, and I think he was probably just six feet tall. You think differently? But yeah, I do. Yeah, we we do we do differ in our opinions there. But this is according to the, the correspondence with this tailor. In London, so he was about six foot, two hundred ten to two hundred twenty pounds. 
as an adult. And he was probably six foot unless he like weirdly wore his clothing, which I think he did. I honestly think that he w- there are there are quotes that I've I've read of others speaking about George Washington that talked about how he wore his clothes too small, like slightly too small. So I, that makes like me think, a story. I know. Right. I, I'm just just as tall as George Washington. I would I like. Believe, I would like I don't to think that. Bull crap I would like theories. to think that. I don't have the same hips, but uh, I would like to think that I am as tall. Yeah. Well, he had a small head. He had a large body. He had big <laughs> hands. Well, that that was probably true, because enough people talk about his fucking hands. <laughs> Take that, Donald Trump. You know, big hands. He needed custom made gloves. Do you need custom made gloves, Donald? No. It's big. No one's ever tiny. complained. Creepy, no one's tiny ever complained. Sausage fingers. <laughs> Nobody complains about his hands, but you suck, Donald Trump. One author described him as having big bones, which is scientific. And I don't think it's actually a thing, according to my former anatomy professor. So there's that. And uh, this is one of my favorite things about history is is going back this far. You don't know what they sounded like, really. But it said that he had a weak, breathy voice and he was not a good orator. Which if he did have a weak, uh, breathy voice, then I think that the show turned. He was portrayed very accurately because his voice is kind of breathy in that as well. I, I just thought that was interesting they, that they made him have I a have breathy voice. Yeah, it's really good. They they made George Washington have a very breathy voice in, in that, which made me excited because at least there's some little bit of accuracy there, even though the whole thing is probably, you know, very inaccurate. Anyway. Yeah, minus the, the weak, breathy voice, descriptions of him remind me a little of Tywin Lannister from Game of Thrones. And if you don't get that reference, fuck you. <laughs> he, he had sort of this trained face that masked his uh, emotions. A quote from his friend slash aide, George Mercer. His features are regular and plastic with all the muscles of his face under perfect control, though flexible and expressive of deep feeling when he's moved by emotions. In conversation, he looks you full in the face, is deliberate, differential, and engaging. His demeanor at the time is composed and dignified. His movements and gest- gestures are graceful. His walk majestic. And he is a splendid horseman. He later described his posture as straight as an Indian. So it sounds like like George Mercer wants to fuck George Washington for sure. Probably just a little bit. As straight as an Indian. I'm going to start saying that to people at work. You know, you sit straight as an Indian. See how see how fast I'm in HR's office. Well, and it's interesting actually that they mentioned this, that he stands as straight as an Indian. We'll get into that a little bit later. But he had a thing for Indians. It was very it was very interesting. Not not a sexual thing. Yeah, I wonder Indians, if he sat like an Indian too. You know, Indian style. And uh, he's also self conscious about his rotten, nasty mouth. Yeah, he does have a nasty mouth. So I did want to take a step back just a little bit. In 1748, a few investors came together to secure a land grant from the king, realizing profits could be made from prospecting and lucrative fur trading in the Ohio country. That would be just west of current-day Pennsylvania, really. The Ohio country isn't necessarily where Ohio is located currently in the United States of America. That would be just south of the Great Lakes. It was more of an entire territory. Yeah, it was like calling the Louisiana Purchase is not necessarily Louisiana. Correct, correct. So interestingly enough, two of the initial organizers of the Ohio country 
were none other than Lawrence and Augustine Jr., George's half-brothers. In 1749, the king granted the land to this investors. So there was this huge, massive addition to what could be considered English territory or British territory in the colonies right around this time. It wasn't until 1753, a year after Lawrence's death, that Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, Robert Dinwiddie, who I just want to kind of talk about this man's appearance because I find it quite funny. He sort of looked like Java the Hutt and was just really fat and apparently loved food and was he looked like a tax collector. He was a tax collector, but really, I mean, people say that he looked like a miserable, fat tax collector <laughs> to just love to eat all day. So anyway, this guy, Robert Dinwiddie, was empowered to create a chain of forts in the Ohio country. You see, the French were moving into that area as well. They believed they had a claim to the territory from Lake Ontario, which is just north of modern-day New York, all the way down to Louisiana, pretty much following the Ohio and Mississippi rivers as a dividing line between the French and British territory. So to cement their claim, in 1949, the French even sailed boats down the Ohio and Mississippi River and buried lead plates stating that the territory was theirs. Like putting some lead plates in the ground is totally going to stop the British from taking what they want. It's, it really is funny reading these. Uh, it's like we own the moon. Yeah, yeah like uh, that's that's ours up there. We put a, we, there's a, there's a plate, there's a flag. We were there. It's kind of ours now. It was, it was, I thought that was uh, super fascinating. Anyway, before Dinwiddie started building these forts, he was to send an envoy to deliver a solemn ultimatum to the French to vacate the territory that the English believed they had the right to. So Washington, George Washington, hearing that an envoy was to be sent out to the Ohio Territory, he probably most likely heard of this from William Fairfax or perhaps his half-brother Augustine, who again was part of this Ohio country. He wrote to Williamsburg to offer himself for the task. And surprisingly, on October 31st, 1753, he was entrusted with the task of delivering correspondence to the French in the Ohio and Canadian wilderness. He was most likely chosen because of his understanding of the wilderness of that area that he gained previously surveying. So apparently all of his time wandering in the wood with that compass was kind of valuable to a future military career for him. He was also probably selected because, well, let's be honest, how many people want to travel into the middle of dangerous wilderness to deliver a message to a party that you are in sort of a cold war with asking them to get the hell out? I mean, you know the phrase, don't kill the messenger? Well, sometimes they did kill the messenger. The mission was actually of such importance that the same day George got the assignment, he hit the road. He stopped and employed a translator named Jacob von Braum and an experienced guide and map maker named Christopher Gist, who this guy will repeatedly pop up in the you know, Washington story. And he also picked up a few other randoms to carry the luggage. Randoms. Some yes, random, random but really seriously carries luggage. Well, he, it was about three or four other people. They don't really mention them, but basically, you can assume that these people were quote unquote indentured servants and or slaves that were just going to carry shit around. We free men. Yeah, we free men. While out on his mission, not only was George to deliver a message to the French, he was directed to establish contact with the leaders of the local Indian tribes of the Iroquois Confederacy for the purpose of gathering information on the French and establishing a diplomatic relationship with them. This proved to be no easy feat. The Indians very much understood their importance and wanted to be paid for every service they provided. The Indians were also apparently very sensitive and crucial of their treatment by the foreigners who, let's be totally honest, were actually invading their territory, which is the American way. It's huge. huge. But it's huge. We're going to make it huge. We're going to go from the east. We're going to go to the west. It's going to be huge. But it is kind of funny, right, that like both the British and the French were like, this is our land. Let's hire these Indians to help us fight to gain control of this land. I wonder who's going to get the most Indians. 
it, it's exactly the game they were playing. And meanwhile, the Indians were like, fuck you, man. This is our land in the beginning. Like, this is our land in the first place. We were actually here first. Like, fuck you. And so they kind of had their own, like, way. I think they thought they were going to deal with the invasion, quote unquote, of these people. But also you have to think, I, I actually don't think the Indians thought of it as much of an invasion of their territory, primarily because they thought everyone was related and, like, was a brother and we'll kind of get to that a little in a little bit but in a place called logstown about 25 miles northwest of current day pittsburgh on november 25th 1753 close to a month after george washington left and started his journey he scored some intelligence from french deserters that were moving through the area a little later on in the day they met with the leader of the seneca tribe which is one of the six tribes of the iroquois confederation a man named tanagarrison which again Forgive me uh, if I've totally butchered that because I I have no idea how to say his name. Uh, Who the English have called the Half King. We'll just go with that name. It's a lot easier to pronounce. Yeah, we're totally going to refer to him. He's like Elrond from from Lord of the Rings. Well, and I think I think they mainly called him the Half King, probably partially because uh, he was actually the spokesman for the Confederacy, the Iroquois Confederation, during previous negotiations with the British. But I actually like truthfully think they didn't actually care to figure out his name. And looking through a lot of the documentation, the, even the name of his, the spelling of his name varies. So nobody actually knew how to spell or say his name. So I think eventually they were kind of just like, fuck it. We'll call him the half king. We're British. We'll take your land. We'll change your name. I'm certain that you're going to be cool with all of that. So, uh, although I did find it interesting when I was reading, George actually addressed the Indians as his brother. So in his journal, he refers to these Indians as his brother, which I find very interesting, mainly because someone said that he was standing straight as an Indian, which is great, but we'll also kind of get into the, more of the Indian stuff. Maybe uh, John Washington banged some Indians while he was destroying the villages. <laughs> uh, he has some cousins. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. No, I'm just saying I, I wonder if that was kind of all part of the pomp. if Because if, uh, the Half King also referred to George and even Dinwiddie as his brothers. They're like, my brothers, you're coming to me. And so I wonder if it was all part of the pomp and circumstance of being an Indian and welcoming people into your tribe and into your area, or if it was just, if it was a belief. Like, so it's like, oh, we're going to do this because it's what we do, or it's, we're going to do this because I actually believe that we're all related in one. So I, I don't know. Ooh, also, before I forget, when we're talking about the half king here, not originally of the Seneca tribe. He was actually kidnapped by the French and later ended up being adopted by the Seneca tribe. So needless to say, the half king was no fan of the French. Washington really seemed to hit it off. The half king even bestowed upon George the nickname of his great grandfather, John Washington, which was Conticarius, which again, if we can remember, was the devourer of villages or the taker of villages, destroyer of villages. And I don't think the nickname bothered George at all. I'm kind of imagining him of being pretty proud of that name and the connection it had with his family. So uh, George even noted the Indians communicated that name to the other tribes. And throughout the rest of his dealings with these tribes, even through the Revolutionary War, they called him by that name. So in the Revolutionary War, they called him the Destroyer of Villages. So, <laughs> yeah. So uh, even though Washington was in a pretty big hurry to complete his mission, the Half King requested, and you'll see this all the time, like when he's like meeting up with these Indians, they like love to take their time. The Half King requested that he stick around an extra day or so that they could receive some wampum, which was a ceremonial uh, shell necklace and beads. So he 
seriously wanted to give George a necklace. A <laughs> <The> shell necklace. <laughs> a shell necklace, I swear to God. Oh. And he also wanted to exchange some information and participate in some ceremonial rituals, uh, whatever those were. I wonder if he smoked the peace pipe. I mean, I think he did. I'm pretty sure he did. Like, I mean, he did imbibe an alcohol, so I think it's fairly safe to say that he probably, you know, went went with it. There's probably a whole book about that. Some hippies wrote it about... Uh... How the founding fathers. I, I am pipe. actually int- like legitimately fascinated by that right now. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to look some stuff up. I wonder if th- that this these tribes even participated in that tradition. Anyway, it's really easy to imagine that Washington wanted to decline the invitation to hang out for a few days, but he was a pretty intuitive guy and realized that would have offended the Indians. So after a few days, he and three Indian escorts, as well as the half king himself, set off, continuing their journey to deliver the ultimatum to the French. The first French they encountered were were in winter quarters at a trading post of Venango. The highest ranking French officer at this post, a man by the name of Captain Philippe Thomas de Chicard, welcomed them in It had been really rainy on their way to this trading post, so George Washington and his men were probably really soaking wet and wanted a warm meal and some shelter. So this guy invites them in. During the meal, the French get pretty drunk and start spilling the beans about, like, what the hell they're even doing in this area. And so Washington was like, hmm, I'm going to write some things down. So he wrote in his journal, which we still have. uh, It's something that we reference in this show to get a lot of information about what we're talking about today. So he noted the wine that they dosed themselves with pretty plentifully soon banished the restraint which at first appeared in their conversation and gave license to their tongues to reveal the sentiments more freely. So, yeah, they began to share about the forts, uh, about how they plan to take control of the entire Ohio country. Uh, And if I were George, my eyes would be about the size of softballs gleaming with excitement that the French were so willing to get drunk and share all of this information. Pretty sweet. Although it does turn out we kind of learned later that Jean Care was acting more deliberately than Washington probably realized. Yeah. Because, yeah, a little, <laughs> a little obvious. Me. Not so obvious to me when I was reading it at first, to be honest with you. Because the Indians were having such a good time, mostly, quote unquote, applying liquor rather quickly and eating, that they actually didn't want to leave. So after a few days, George got the group to hit the road again, this time plus three French escorts. Uh, so the French were like, well, well, we'll take you to the fort, but we're like going to we're going to go with you. The speed at which the group was traveling wasn't quite adequate enough for young George. So he and guide Christopher Gist, his buddy, rode ahead, pushing through some pretty rough winter weather. And on December 11th, Washington and Gist finally arrived at Fort La Bouffe, which was where they were heading to deliver this message in the first place. But before approaching the camp, according to Flexner's account, uh, one of the authors a book about George Washington. Washington got really dressed up, wanting to make a good impression, like super, super spiffy. They were received by an old one-eyed captain named Jacquin Le Degueur de Saint-Pierre. After receiving the official correspondence from Washington, Saint-Pierre requested a few days to put together an official response. So the first few days, Washington walked about the camp and was like, since I'm here, I should probably take some notes. There are 220 birch canoes over there. Some bark and plank walls over here. More buildings over there. Let me just draw that out a little bit. That's exactly the language. He he was quite the little spy, though, for real. And it's pretty, pretty important to note that the French did absolutely nothing to hide their intentions. The French were very clearly 
headed into the Ohio country. And as for St. Pierre's correspondence, he simply told Washington, as the summons you send me to retire, I don't think myself obliged to obey it. So basically, he just told the British to fuck off. And on December 14th, St. Pierre hands Washington official sealed correspondence for Governor Dinwiddie. He prepared a canoe for Washington full of supplies for the journey home, which is kind of nice of him, actually. But as before, St. Pierre's intentions, seemingly courteous on the surface, were a little more nefarious. St. Pierre promised guns, food, and liquor to the Indian guides if they stayed behind until Washington was well underway. And remember, the uh, Indians' services were definitely for sale, so... They were very inclined to take up on that, which Washington was... Liquor money. It was quite literally liquor money. Washington was pissed off when he found this out. And so he confronted both St. Pierre and the half king, basically called the half king an Indian giver. I'm like not shitting you. And accused him uh, of complete betrayal. And he eventually got the half king to depart the fort with him as originally promised. Although Washington was in an extreme hurry to get back to Williamsburg and deliver all of this news. As Ron Chernow puts it again... And this is what I was talking about earlier about him loving Indians. This this blew my mind. He stripped off his Tidewater costume, so his pretty his prettiness, and assumed that of an Indian in a walking dress, leather leggings, and possibly even moccasins. So it's so funny for me to imagine that Washington was playing an Indian in the woods with these guides of his. <laughs> it's probably a lot more comfortable. <laughs> well, I mean, there's very there's a reason why these people dress like that. It was it was very much built. Yeah, they weren't British cunts. Exactly. Powdered hair. So I wonder I like wonder if some of these times though honestly spared him, you know, this racism towards Indians that basically the French and the British like hated the Indians and were like we'll just use them. I, I really think he spent a lot of time with them and understood their the like why they did the things that they did because he spent so much time out in the woods that he kind of he kind of ended up liking them, I think, to a, to a degree. As much as he could, as much as someone who wanted to kind of be British royalty could like an Indian, I, I, I really think he did, actually. Yeah, and when he stayed with a white man, he got a shitty bed. <laughs> so he preferred the, the goddamn leaves with the savages on the ground, which I would too. I mean, I don't want to sleep in a nasty-ass mattress with bed bugs. Sorry, someone just sent me a very sexual message. Um, you, should, you should keep that in. <laughs> 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 a little ways into their journey. So they're, so they're headed back. You know, like I said, Washington was in a pretty big hurry. So even though he like wanted these Indians to go with him, he totally ditched them. And Washington and Gist set off by themselves. And soon after they departed, their known Indian guides, they ran into some French Indians who agreed to show them the fastest way back to the forts of the Ohio River. Just, to, just as a note, he ran across these Indians at a place called Murder Town. So maybe not like the best place to pick up some Indians who were like, yeah, we'll like totally show you the way back to the forks, buddy, with like murder town, with like some slight winking and like a sign that just says murder town in the background. Like, oh, seriously, this is what it was called. It was called murder town. No joke. A little ways into their journey with these French Indians, Gist looked over at Washington and was like, I've got a bad feeling. Got a bad about feeling about this. A bad feeling. And Washington didn't actually seem too concerned playing cool as a cucumber. So shortly after Gist raises these suspicions, one of the Indians, one of the Indian guides runs ahead, turns around, and fires a shot at both Washington and Gist, but totally misses. Which he the our accounts of what Washington says was he was about fifteen steps away from the the Indian was about 15 steps away from both Washington and Gist. So the Indian really could have actually put a bullet through him relatively easily, even though the guns totally didn't shoot 
all that accurately. But near misses and total luck moments like this are really peppered all throughout Washington's life, not to jump too far ahead. So anyway, Gist charges the Indian and wrestles the gun from him. And Washington begs Gist not to kill the Indian for some crazy ass reason. Why do you think Washington didn't want him to kill the Indian? He's a pussy. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's just a surveyor at heart. He's not. He's not ready to be General Give me, George give me my compass and chain lengths. That's all I want. Leave these Indians be. I think he was probably aroused by the sound of bullets whizzing past him. That comes later. So they, <laughs> they actually, he probably was a little aroused. Now that I think about it, that's that's funny because that probably was one of the first instances he was shot at. Yeah, this totally would have been. So that that's interesting. Yeah, yeah he that's just got his cherry popped. He didn't want to. <laughs> fire that in in, uh, in more blood. He's like, no, 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 no. That was good. Uh, that, was, that was good. Yeah, um, it's kind of puzzling to me that he didn't off this Indian. Yeah, I, I thought about that a lot. Um, and I, I actually, it really didn't occur to me until just now that was the first time he had probably ever been shot at. He'd, he'd probably done a bunch of shooting, but it had been shot at with the express purpose of murdering him. So anyway, they let the would-be assassin go, and they like literally run in the opposite direction that they just saw the Indian running in like, Oh fuck, we got to get out of here. And you know, I mean, this guy could have run, run into the woods, right. To get all of his friends and be like, okay, I totally fucked up, but like, let's go kill these white dudes. You know, the two travel all night in fear that an Indian hunting party might be trying to kill them. The two reach a river they expected to find frozen, but it's not. So they build a makeshift raft to try to float across. But halfway across, the raft is hit by a chunk of ice and breaks apart, forcing both into the water. The two make it to an island in the middle of the river and stay the night. So let's be honest. I totally had one of these imagining of a broke back moment happening here between these two men. What do you mean? It's, it's two men drenched in freezing water, both fearing frostbite and death. I mean, they're totally naked and huddling together at this point which is like totally what i'm imagining so there was probably a moment in there where washington like whispers over to gist's ear and he's like i can't quit you (laughs) right like maybe maybe that's just me i don't know it's practically a fact it's 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 a fact now i said it so i think that means it's a fact i just honestly couldn't believe i was like this is really slightly homoerotic but like not really it's just like my mind running rampant their balls are really cold i mean it's it's super i mean they are really cold they just plunged into ice water so anyways enough of that in the morning they make it to the other side of the river finding that overnight the river had frozen so it got so cold that night the river froze and they were drenched in water yeah they were totally yeah they're definitely naked and they were they they were afraid there was some rubbing there was some like maybe heavy petting so washington escaped the encounter yet again without any injury however gist did suffer some frostbite in his fingers and toes so i think that that means that washington was doing a lot of the work with the hands keeping them moving you know what i mean you know what i mean anyway hand work is very important (laughs) kind kind of twitty says that (laughs) you know you need to find a man with the that touch whatever the fuck that song says oh my goodness man with a slow hand (laughs) man with the slow touch yeah that's That's probably what he was talking about here was george washington's night in the island so uh anyway on january 16th 1754 washington reached williamsburg and handed governor dinwiddie the sealed letter from the french that read oh fuck i'm supposed to have this letter 
well, that that basically read "fuck off." We're totally taking all of your land, and you know we we don't recognize that you have any right to this land. So Governor Dinwiddie wanted to send word to the Board of Trade in London ASAP of the intentions of the French. So to help the board understand the immediate danger that the British interest in the Ohio country were in, Dinwiddie asked for Washington to gather his journal that he was writing at the time and all of his other reconnaissance notes for him to send along with the official correspondence to London. So Washington, not a formally trained writer, was nervous that he had so little time to refine his journal into a more polished work before a bunch of people were going to see it. And apparently he asked Dinwiddie for a little more time. Dinwiddie's like, no. And so he sends all of his work to Dinwiddie. The journal was published in England as a pamphlet, which instantly thrust George into the spotlight over in England. George was really self-conscious about this pamphlet, He published an advertisement that would later be attached to the pamphlet after learning that the pamphlet went into wide publication that was basically like, I didn't have any time. Super sorry. There's probably (laughs) some spelling errors in here, which there totally were. If you read read through this publication, the, the Journal of George Washington from 1754, it is so bad. And they, you can still get it today in the original writing. And in in. most of the books that we've read for this, the authors have like a, at the beginning of the book, say that they've edit, they've already edited his the, th- the primary sources that they have from George Washington. So he was not he was not his best own editor, to say the least. Yeah, for all of his hard work, George was paid a fifty pound reward, which barely covered his cost for the adventure. And he would write to his brother Augustine complaining about the low pay. George Washington writing a letter complaining about something was to- is totally going to be a theme that we're going to be picking up on here. But on the plus side, the adventure provided George with enough credentials to land an appointment as lieutenant colonel at a young age of 22, uh, a position that he truly desired in the upcoming campaigns that were about to take place in the Ohio country, assuming that the British were going to come over and have a war with the French. And I find that interesting. In a letter he wrote to the Virginia official asking for it advanced command, he mentioned very accurately that he was not qualified for the position, but stated his own application and diligent study of his duty would qualify him for the position. So he's like, I'm not actually qualified, but I promise you I'm going to learn how to do this thing. So Lieutenant Colonel George Washington, headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. He gets some recruits to train. He's not happy with the quality of men he's been given. He says to the governor, look, dude, you've given me a bunch of scruffy looking nerf herders. Some of them don't even have shoes or socks. It's pretty much the opening of most sports movies where Washington is a cross between Danny Glover and Angels in the Outfield and Rick Moranis and Little Giants. (laughs) His guys are coming to practice without cleats or shoulder pads. For Washington, this is a less than ideal start to his military career. So at this point, the race is on as far as establishing a fort at the forks of the Ohio River, a.k.a. modern-day Schittsburg. It's up to Washington and his little giants to successfully beat the French to the punch. He's given authorization to use deadly force should his ragtag group of uh, little, little big league run into the Frenchies. The governor says, off you go to Pittsburgh and... Washington embarks on embarks on this journey with 160 of his little giants, only to find out the French have already taken control of the forks of the Ohio and have started construction for Fort Duquesne. Duquesne. More than... It's Duquesne. <laughs> I, 
know at least that much. There's there's still a Duquesne University dick, and uh, their uh, their force is more than superior in numbers with boats, artillery, and an actual fort, which is kind of important back then. I mean, the first person to put up a fort is at a huge advantage, unless you're Julius Caesar huh. or uh, just a superior commander, which George Washington is not at this point or pretty much ever. And you'd think at at this stage Washington would tur- would have turned the little giants around and and await the military wisdom and strength of the British Empire. But he says, "Fuck it, onward march." He begins writing letters to the colonial governors of Pennsylvania and Maryland to send troops and supplies in preparation to take out the French fort. And they do. It looks like Washington is forming some sort of coherent strategy at this time you know he's uh going down a fairly fundamental checklist of war stuff more men check guns art- artillery spears slingshots grenades check equal pay for colonial and british officers no bitch that's not happening <laughs> turns out that royal british officers are making a lot more money than washington a shit ton more so he says frig off i'd rather get paid nothing than take this joke of a salary. So he says, I'm just not going to get paid. I'm not going to accept your salary. I'm a volunteer. He's a Tennessee volunteer. You guys are a bunch of jerks. Maybe I don't know what I'm doing here at the age of 22, trying to take this fort. Maybe I'm going to need to pay more attention to the French and worry about my compensation later. (laughs) And uh, this is pretty much right before his his, uh, first experiences in uh, combat. And I think that's a good point to stop on, yeah, on this, a good spot. this leg of our journey. We're really glad that you came back to join us again after our first episode. Glad you weren't too deterred from uh, hearing us talk about ourselves. And if you want to go ahead and send us an email, you can do so at info at POTUS.life. Or you can head over to the Facebook page, POTUS Life Podcast. Leave us a message. Send us some hate mail. Or you can send us some smoke smoke signals like uh the indians would have you can definitely send us some smoke signals but that's another variety of smoke that we would prefer i'm kidding but yeah so uh thank you again for joining us and we will definitely catch you next time bye-bye Washington, Washington, six foot eight weighs a fucking ton. Opponents beware, opponents beware. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Let me lay it on the line, he had two on the vine. I mean two sets of testicles, so divine. On a horse made of crystal, he patrolled the land. With the mason ring and schnauzer in his perfect hands. Here comes George, in control. Women dug his snuff and his gallant stroll. Eight opponents' brains. And invented cocaine. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Washington.